Hello and welcome to the Hacking Safe Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Garrett Daly. Garrett is a philosopher and designer. He's also the founder of Ion Enterprises. Garrett, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. So you're one of the more interesting persons I've met in the, in the last six months or so of my life. I made a large transition, moved to Austin, Texas. And among the individuals that I've encountered are you. And you're interesting for a number of reasons, but a lot of the reason why I wanted to talk to you is just uh, we have a mutual shared interest in philosophy, and you're somebody who's taken that interest in philosophy and really turned it into a business. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the impetus behind that and how that works in practice. So to get started, how did you first find out you were interested in uh, studying philosophy? I remember I went camping with my father when I was a kid and maybe eight or 10 or something. And we're sitting outside, made a fire uh, at a lake in California. And I looked up at the stars and I'm like, you know, it looks like they're pinpricks inside of a bowl. Right. And I remember to some, something to that extent. My dad said, uh, you know, a lot of philosophers have said that over the years. I was like, great. This, <laughs> this is cool. Um, on a more serious note. Um, I got into Ayn Rand when I was in high school, ten, mm -hmm. ninth or 10th grade. Um, and before that I was like a super hardcore communist, uh, as most 13 year old logic would lead you to think, you know, so I pivoted super hard from that, uh, got really into objectivism for a, the middle of my teenage years, big, still a big fan of the fountainhead. Uh, but I in the process of that, that kind of ran, led me to Nietzsche. Um, Nietzsche led me in a variety of different directions. And I ended up reading a lot of um, esoteric stuff around that time. It was basically, I was like, you know, objectivist, uh, Ayn Rand philosophies, like materialist atheism. Mm -hmm. um, and I found that unfulfilling. And so I kind of went in the search of standard religion, which... I, again, I found that relatively unfulfilling, got into esoterica, um, read an abundance of that. And I just kind of kept coming up against this wall where I felt like nobody had any really like meaningful answers. And a lot of the people that were really interesting didn't do anything practical or had no way of turning like very abstract philosophical musings into kind of concrete advice, mm. which is an ongoing problem that I have with the field as a whole. So I was like, all right, well, probably should figure out how to make this useful. Mm, okay. And so you were influenced. Uh, I mean, that's an interesting trajectory. <laughs> Communism to uh, to Randianism to, um, to Nietzsche and I guess more esoteric stuff. So who were your primary philosophical interests when you reached sort of a more mature stage? Um, well, it depends. You know, it's through, through that period, I was got into a lot of Carl Jung, which I know he's mm. not technically a philosopher, but you know, we could debate the definition of a philosopher. I There's think we can people... call him one. I think he's, yeah, he qualifies. He's if Dostoevsky yeah. is one, then Jung can be one as well. Any any sufficiently complex thought is philosophy, you know, and, mm. and pretty much um, every single field of study at one point was called philosophy. So you could sure a, a true philosopher is somebody who's seeking wisdom for the sake of seeking wisdom, I guess, which um, at any rate, so I got into a lot of Jung. I love um, Joseph Campbell. Um, 
around when I started writing my blog, uh, which I haven't kept up with as much, but I did write quite a bit for a while um, from like 2018 to 2020. I think I wrote like 150, 160 articles or something like that. Mm. And when I had started writing, it was right around when Peterson came on the scene. And it was cool because there was a lot of the stuff that he was talking about. I was like, oh, I, nobody, no one else alive is talking about this stuff, you know? Exactly. Uh, so I, you know, I like some Peterson. I liked, um, I liked the first arc of Peterson. He should have, he should have stayed away after uh, the Benzos, but um, that's a different, different discussion. Mm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I like mythology has always been a really big part of my life. Uh, when I was a kid, my dad would read me mythology books, you know, uh, stuff like that. And I guess there's a like I've always had a very deep yearning for some kind of mythic approach to reality or like a, a way to relate to the world that is more meaningful in nature and that is just not a like accessible experience in the world that we live in so that's where I like the esoteric stuff and I like mythological stuff because there's this feeling of life in that that you don't find in the you know the last hundred or so years of just material and potentially you know as far back as the enlightenment this like very rational, very materialist approach to the world that we have. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I was also drawn to Peterson uh, largely because of his interest in Jung. There was really nobody talking about Jung at the time. And frankly, there still really isn't. I mean, I guess there's some John David Ebert stuff. But um, other than him, really, there there's not a lot out there that's, uh, that's any good. And so that was... Uh, you know, also pretty influential for me, uh, especially in my late teens and early 20s. Um, so how did you uh, get around to starting Ion? You were writing uh, a lot. That's a sort of Jungian concept. So a funny story, but originally it was not, um, I, I did not know Jung had that book until after I had already um, decided on that term for things. Mm. So um I will, I'll mention this. You can pull on this thread if you want. This is a huge diversion for me getting to the point that you just asked for. If you, if you do pull this thread, um, I don't know if, if everyone's listening to this on audio mode, you won't see what I'm pointing at, but the symbol that I have, uh, behind me here, which you can find on my website, there's a page called symbols, um, that talks about it. But, um, I had done psychedelics at some point around, uh, not being a materialist atheist anymore and getting into more of the religious stuff. And, at one point I had a kind of like a vision, I guess, of a variety of things. Uh, my theory of everything, which is on my website as well, it's just related to the symbol, uh, stuff like that. And I just kind of had this idea of like how I thought the world worked. And I figured if I just had this one thing that I understood that I could kind of base everything off of that. And the way that I structure that is alpha, iota, omega, which is, um, I won't get into it right now, but uh, so I had the letters AIO, which is also an acronym in computer science for all in one, which is very mm. cool. Uh, I found that out later. Right. And uh, it's hard. The the word IO doesn't. Um, it's not easy to say in the same way that ION is. Mm. So some years later, um, this this symbol took me like four years and I was still like formulating a lot of stuff that I wrote about later. Uh, but while I was doing some research on this stuff, I found the word ION consequentially which I didn't know was the thing. Um, and I looked into it and it's this, uh, you know, in Greek, uh, Greek philosophy, there are three kinds of time. You have Kronos, which is linear, Kairos, which is like the right time to do something or the, mm. 
you could loosely say the divine president or something like that but it's really more like a time to act and ion which is mythic or cyclical time uh so the way that i usually explain it is like if you're a hunter right chronos is the time it takes to shoot the bow and have it hit the target kairos is the right time to shoot ion is the cyclical nature of the hunter and the the prey and the myth, myth of the hunt and this kind of like eternal recurrence of that um archetypal experience throughout time hmm. um which is like right that's basically exactly the thing that i was always looking for in life is is ion is that experience of the mythical the the sacred the transcendent um so i ended up with a, a company that i started based off of twitter several years ago called ion media where you know i had been writing for some time at this point and started a variety of twitter dm groups with people that uh now have a lot more followers than they did at the time and we just started you know i was writing other people were writing um we were doing podcasts together trying to cross promote all that sort of stuff and i had an llc that we made we did a uh, an ebook a long time ago that didn't do super hot and we did a court or not a course a um kind of like a conference with like 30 speakers that were all Twitter people. Um, and there was some stuff that went on around when that launched that also didn't do, end up doing as well. So Ion Media kind of fell apart. Um, then I got into working in design professionally and then came back and I was like, well, whatever I do is going to be called Ion because uh, that's mm. the point of, of what I'm trying to accomplish, right? So. Okay, okay. So that's sort of the origin of uh, of the metaphor. And I really like the uh, the the archer um imagery there that it encapsulates all three um that's a great idea um so ion is a design agency um and you're obviously you know you offer a lot of different services for potential clients um but it's sort of philosophically centered design and so uh i hope it's not too much of an ask but could you get into some of the like details around how philosophy influences the changes that you're trying to bring to a particular business. Uh, for oh, example, for sure. you know, three of your values are truth, will, love. Maybe we could start with those. Yeah, that's, um, I'll, st I'll start with the values. I'll look back to the actual question because that's a bit of a, um, it'll divert a little bit, but a worthwhile, I think. Uh, so one of the things um if, in the context of a business, um, I like values as the first thing you start with. So when I work with my clients, the first thing that we talk about is their values, right? Mm. Um, people tend to, I don't know, in the modern world, we tend to think like morality or values or things like this are like um, intangible and thus like uh, secondary to doing stuff. So people think of morality as like, if you're moral, you're not effective. If you have values, they're trade-offs, you know? Um, which I don't really think is the case, you know, value, the, the root of the word evaluate is value. Values are how we make decisions about things, right? Uh, if you choose to take a job that you love, that pays less, you value having work that you care about more than money, for example. So that's, you know, our values dictate our actions and you can retroactively figure out someone's values by looking at their actions, right? What you, what you do is what you care about more mm -hmm. or less. So, uh, truth, will, and love is something that I came up with, um, Basically, starting at, at kind of the premise, God is love, right? That, um, I think, is the central, if you had the one-line uh, statement of Christianity, that that is kind of that, right? Because um, 
the highest value, you know, like Rand would say, uh, life is the highest value, which I have a lot of issues with that framing. Uh, Christianity says God is love. So love is the highest value, right? Um, cause if, if God equals love, then pursuing love is pursuing God. Right. And so, um, I don't like, uh, um, Crowley at all, but Crowley has what I thought is an interesting proposition, which is, um, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, love mm. under will. Right. And so people, people really don't understand, um, how words work and they don't like read that correctly. So if you, people that's is commonly misunderstood by people will in Crowleyanism or whatever you would call his his stuff is this basically like the the thing that you as a person are supposed to do like your will capital w will is like your purpose or like this higher calling that you have that you're supposed to pursue and if you read that in the way that we use the word will in more normal english it's like oh i'm going to do what i want at the expense of everything and everyone around me right um, but in reality, it's like, it's almost like a union thing, which is like your, your self, capital S self has like this intent or this purpose that you're supposed to discover. And when you're acting in alignment with that, that's what your purpose is in life. And so I wrote an article about this called value in the highest that talks about the, I think that was the first time I talked about my three values. Mm. Um, and so one of the issues that I have, and I've written about this at length as well, um, with, we could call this the modern framing of Christianity because I would wager that Christianity in the year zero, 100, uh, you know, or 33, 100 around then uh -huh. was probably very different from what people today are experiencing. But in the modern conception of it, it ends up being very impotent. And this is something to some extent that Nietzsche talks about. Um, you know, pe people have written etymological threads about whether turn the other cheek literally means um, don't like retaliate or if you know there's uh i've read somebody wrote about it that um there's this kind of custom about if somebody slapped you a roman slapped you or or somebody in higher status in like ancient israel then um they can only backhand you so if you turn the other cheek they have to hit you on the front and that means treating you like an equal so this what i imagine is that the original intent of all that stuff got lost in translation um, there's a variety of good books about problems with biblical translation that are worth reading. Misquoting Jesus is a good one. Um, yeah. At any rate, so the issue that I have is the mainstream kind of religion of Christianity, I think, is very impotent in the sense that it doesn't have the ability to stand up for itself. It, uh, you know, it it ends up being the victim of reality, like the whole metaphysical framing of it is like life life is suffering and the point of it is it almost ends up being gnostics like heaven is a place outside of reality that you go to by accepting the suffering of reality's test like almost a job kind of thing but it has this metaphysical kind of exit door yeah and that that bothers me i don't you know i like um but the in my philosophy the point is to live well and mm -hmm. for people around you to live well and not to be like you know to live in harmony with the nature of reality so the idea of will as the value above that comes in as the counterbalance to that, which is, you know, uh, will would exercise tough love, which is like, hey, maybe sometimes we have to do things that aren't great, uh, that aren't like super fun for everyone that actually are good for you. And you can notice there's a lack of this kind of concept in society, right? Like people don't do, want to do hard stuff. They don't want to have hard conversations. Um, and that represents a society, in my opinion, that has gone too far in the direction of love you know, either of these values, however, can be become destructive if you go too yeah. far in one direction. 
Well, you, you could you could argue that it's a kind of pathologization of of love, right? Like, yeah, uh, it, because real love would be giving them the difficult medicine. You need both, right? You need both love and will. And you could I use these as a proxy. You could also substitute love and will could go uh, chaos and order. You can mm. say feminine, masculine, respectively, right? Um, but there are you have these two kind of fundamental necessary but opposite forces right they're they are distinct but inseparable mm. and those things if you go um all the way in the direction of will you get like a fascist dictator or some kind of like um absolute hyper masculine monster which is not good right if you go all the way in the direction of love you get a martyr which is also not useful right it's if your philosophy only creates martyrs your philosophy is a suicide cult right so you need a third thing to balance these out, and that's where truth comes in. So uh, agape, thelema, aletheia, uh, right, is mm. is truth. And these are all the divine forms in the Greek. And so truth, the, the way that I um, have kind of characterized it. So aletheia was originally Heidegger who used that word. My use of that has nothing to do with Heidegger. I've not read a bunch of Heidegger. I don't just ignore that. But he picked a good word, and I love that word, right? So in in the underworld in Greece, uh, Greek mythology, there are three rivers, one of which is the Leth, uh, L-E-T-H-E. So the Leth is where they would take souls after they die, they would dip them in the river and they would forget. Leth means forgettingness or concealedness or hiddenness, something to that effect, right? So hmm. Aletheia is unhiddenness, right? It's the state right. of being unconcealed, which is cool because truth is evident, right? It's just a fact. And so that that framing of that i like because if you look at love and will as these opposing forces truth is the interplay between the two and the two themselves contradict but mm. the two of them uh, themselves are just part of it so you could have subjectivity objectivity right um faith and reason any any of these dichotomies can be kind of plugged into this little triangle and then you can figure out okay how do these relate because the truth is probably somewhere somewhere in the middle or past the two dichotomous pieces yeah i i do just have a quite a, a slight um tangent to ask you about which is like have you read heidegger's um uh question concerning technology no i have not read uh an abundance of heidegger uh so that i just well, found that word when i was looking up uh truth words a, yeah. a long time ago i i would i would venture to uh recommend that essay it, it's it's not too long it's like 17 pages and um that's that's an essay where he's using the word aletheia uh, to, to mean revealing, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and he's describing the nature of technology as as kind of having a revealing force uh, on nature. Um, so anyway, you might find that interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll check that out for sure. Yeah. Um, and so those are, I, I mean, I, I, I can see how that the, um, those three values are intention and there's sort of, there's the will and the love and truth is sort of holding them together. Um, and where does that come into the way that Ion approaches, you know, the, the company itself as well as clients? Yeah. So that would be, um, that would be my company's value, my personal values as well. I have those tattooed over here, but hmm. um so we'll take a step back from that because those you can use that the the three piece model as a way of solving problems um, that I seems to apply. I have not found an exception to that rule yet. Uh, I've been looking for one, but 
Um, so when, when I'm working with clients, I don't generally go super, super, super heavy like that. Cause that's more of like a metaphysical proposition. That's kind of outside the bounds of what you're doing in a sure. business. But so if I'm working with a client, we go through, we start with their values, right? Mm. Um, partially my basic thesis and what I'm trying to test with the agency is the current accepted definition of the business is something like a profit-seeking enterprise, right? Which is like, yes, obviously a business has to make money, but what I'd like to see people kind of shift their perspective to a little bit is, um, or the definition that I use is a business is a tool or system designed to accomplish a mission and achieve a vision, right? And that very, very slight shift in framing changes the way that we look at it, right? So if you look at a business just as a tool to make money, you miss the point. Money is blood, right? You have a business that does not have any blood. It will not do anything, right? It, it's dead. Yeah. Um, it is a necessary prerequisite to doing anything of value. You need to have the ability to generate profit, but that's not the point. It shouldn't be the point, right? And you can see I'm reading, um, actually, it's over here, uh, this Jim Collins book, The uh Beyond Entrepreneurship 2.0, which I guess he just did. This is the updated version he read in the 90s. But one of the things he talked about is that like people performing at the top of their uh, their industry, money is not an incentive for them, right? The people who are doing the best work, if you just pay them more uh, and your company sucks, they will not come work for you, right? And right. this is, you can see the difference in people who want to go work at Apple versus Microsoft or Tesla versus Honda or any of these you know, companies where you're like, oh, well, one of these is clearly much more uh, favorably thought of than the other, right? Nobody's a diehard Microsoft fan like they are for Apple, you know, uh, or Tesla for the same reasons. And that that's what having values and a, a clear mission does, right? Um, a notable thing with Tesla's mission statement, which I love and I reference a lot, Tesla's mission statement is accelerating the global transition to sustainable energy, which says nothing about cars, nothing about batteries, if they had to pivot to do something other than make cars, they could because they'd still be accomplishing their mission, right? Mm. If you look at Honda, their mission statement is something along the lines of helping people move uh, freely or efficiently. Or so. I haven't looked at it in a couple of years, but it's something to that effect, right? It's about moving people. It's very vehicle-centric, um, but it's not like this awe-inspiring kind of high-concept, high heady thing like Tesla's doing. Um and so that's what what I try to get at when I work with my clients is, okay, you have your values, you have three to seven things that you care about more than everything else. You have your mission, like why why do you actually want to do this thing? And generally, for people, especially entrepreneurs, because they're still pretty idealistic, uh, I'm sure somebody who's like a mid level manager at some like soulless company is not like this. But the entrepreneurs don't just want to do it for the money. I think that's part of it, and you need to want it so you can get out and do sales or whatever. But they want to do something meaningful. And I try to ask them why until we get to the core of it. And for, you know, one of my, you know, Taylor Capito. So mm. Taylor has this um, is the a single gene mutation that caused her a bunch of uh, health issues that she researched and figured out how to fix, dramatically improved her quality of life. And so she's working on Generate, which is this uh, genomic and life science data platform so that other people can fix their single or multi-gene issues that they have. Like it's it's totally doable, but the tech isn't there yet. And that's why she's building the tech. 
right? And that's the kind of thing in my experience that really gets people excited. It's easier to pitch if you're if you're selling like, hey, we have this big meaningful thing. Like it's so meaning is so seldom found in the world that we live in, and especially in business. You know, I don't know how many uh, entrepreneurs I've talked to who have like, oh, it's a B two B SaaS that is like Uber for X, and we're using uh, global synergy to accelerate um, teamwork with. Uh, b2b sales teams or something right, like super right. doll like that you know what i mean yeah lifeless that, nobody wants that mm-hmm. nobody's excited about that yeah so so helping helping your clients find the meaning in what whatever it is that they're doing um and i mean were you surprised at all that this was a uh a useful frame for thinking about business just in general, just sort of this philosophical approach, because a lot of uh, philosophically minded people, you know, think of business and philosophy as sort of inherently intention, or if you're involving philosophy in commerce at all, you're like some kind of sophist um, and so forth. So, I mean, how do you, how do you think about the union of those two activities? I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I would say ostensibly I am a sophist. so I, this is my big issue. Uh, to one, one of my big issues with philosophy as a whole. Um, let's ignore whether or not the sophists were doing a great job at the thing they were doing, right? Mm. Which we, we don't know. We only know from Plato, from what he said that Socrates said, Plato. You know, yeah, right. I, I like Plato. I don't know if he's the most reliable source in the world. But um, the idea that you could get paid to do philosophy, to teach the rich and the powerful. Like if you're thinking just off the top of your head, you're like out of all the people in the world who probably needs to be taught ethics and morals the most, mm-hmm. the rich and the powerful, that's an awesome idea. And you could sell that to them. And they were, philosophy was a valuable thing. Socrates comes in and is like, you guys shouldn't get paid. You guys are assholes, right? Yeah. Terrible idea. That is, uh, so the, one of the things that Socrates kind of, I, yeah, I think it was probably inevitable, so it's not like this is his fault, and I generally like Socrates, but he introduced uh, the mind-body dichotomy into Western thought in a way, and that kind of plays out through Plato and Aristotle, Plato being the mind and Aristotle being the body in the sense that Aristotle leads to materialism and Plato leads to this idealist thought, right? Yeah. And severing... You know, the idea that, yeah, I don't know, you could make the argument, maybe we don't need to have money and it'll all be great if we live in the big hippie commune or something. That's plausible, but I don't know how anyone's going to get there. If everybody agreed that we didn't need money, we could get away with it. Is that ever going to happen? No, probably not. Um, if we do have to have money, probably there should be a way to uh, tie material value and like abstract uh, moral philosophical intellectual value together and you can see that you know as kind of we have this mind-body rift in the culture um the academy you know researchers and scientists and stuff don't get paid very well and they live in this like ivory tower of ideas that is very divorced and, and more so in philosophy and and like research um but then there are people who are doing research that like research things that are useful and they make products or they do like engineers right are super super intelligent people they actually make stuff so it's like we culturally i think it's so ingrained of a belief that philosophy is inherently useless and people will 
pay lip service to it being useful, but we don't treat it like it's useful. Yeah, right? we don't treat it like it's a valuable thing. But it's the mother of all fields, right? It's the activity by which any value is instantiated in the world because you're conceptualizing something you're you should should be going and doing something about it, right? So my goal with the agency is to establish business philosophy as a formal discipline. Um, you know, maybe at least I pioneer that and somebody else figures out how to like super, super formalize it later. Um, but I do think that it's fundamentally useful. I think that if you look at successful companies, and I've done a lot of research on this subject, um, companies with well-articulated philosophies tend to outperform their competitors by 10 to 20% on average, right? Which is a crazy claim. But if you look at the difference between Tesla and Honda, Microsoft and Apple, um, I have, if you want to say anything to that, um, feel free. Otherwise, I'm going to dive into the pizza story. So, Well, hold on. Before, before we get yeah. into this pizza story, I guess just rash, wrap up this point. Um, or I think uh, perhaps you have. Uh, I, I would just, you know, I mean, I have some things to say about it, but it's mostly just me being like effusively in agreement about mm. your position on this. Uh, I mean, I do. So so I I did a um, my uh, senior seminar for my degree in political philosophy was actually uh, on something called four trials. And so we looked at the trial of Socrates. We looked at the trial of Jesus, uh, the trial of Galileo and the trial of Adolf Eichmann. And. Uh, so I spent a considerable amount of time with the trial of Socrates and, you know, my takeaway was basically that uh, he should have been exiled <laughs> rather than killed, but that largely he was guilty of the charges uh, that the, that his, his peers uh, of Athens uh, accused him of, and that he was a sort of corrupting and kind of degenerate force. Um, and, uh, you know, Nietzsche's written on this as well, that Socrates really was uh, a decadent in some ways and is responsible for a lot of um a lot of uh you know i guess distortions uh one could say you know not to be ungrateful to to him obviously he's contributed a lot through uh through plato and and aristotle and others but um i think that's largely true and then i also think that academic philosophy in particular as a field as a discipline is largely responsible for this view of philosophy as this uh, very uh, highfalutin, abstract, useless thing that has no real bearing on life. The whole point of philosophy originally was to understand how to live well, right, as you said. And people forget about that, and people that, are, that, that don't have a good familiarity with the field just think it's a bunch of like, you know, I don't know, analytic types or or weird, you know, continentals who are just sort of like, too obsessed with idealism or too obsessed with like the meaning of words. And it's like, how is this practical at all? Well, it used to be a lot more practical. That's it. I mean, and this is the thing to say, you know, I a hundred percent with Socrates. Socrates is a bum. Like he's a great bum. He's a very smart bum, but he's a bum. Um, mm. But also Socrates is like a general, I think, you know, he's like a war hero. So yeah, that's extent, true. They probably should have kept him having a job and they, like they maybe just put him down when he's done doing the fighting because he just sits around and thinks about stuff and doesn't have anything to do anymore right like that's you just go crazy you have to do something productive yeah um versus like Kant who is the worst of all right Kant never leaves his hometown he's so boring that every day he gets up at the same time and goes on a walk with such regularity that everyone can uh, time their watches based on when he walks by dies right. a virgin like this is the this is the real issue with philosophy. And this is partially where like my um 
if if I get to the end of my life and and people are like, hey, Garrett, you suck or um, you're a loser or any of these things, I request that everyone burn everything that I ever wrote, like ignore anything I ever said. You know, it's it should not be if I cannot live well, hmm. then anything that I've thought should be discarded. Right. Because when we don't do this, you get people like Kant, Kant, who writes thousands and thousands of pages about morality, like the the nature of philosophy is intrinsically tied with action, right? Theory does not exist in a vacuum. A theory without practice attached to it is not re useful. It should be discarded, right? Mm -hmm. You can't, you probably, if you had to pick one, one of the two, you'd probably get further if you just practice and learn the theory in the act of doing the thing. But certainly um, the two should be married, right? Joined at the hip. Yes. So this is kind of, kind of the premise is like where I don't, at this point, I don't really, I can't muster up the the self-loathing to read thousands of pages of philosophy anymore because like, you know, a bunch of people are yelling at me because I said Schopenhauer is an incel. He may or may not have been an incel, but. Oh, no, um, I, I remember this. This is a yeah. big controversy. It was a bit, yeah, it was great. Um, yeah, we're about, about I'm, I'm actually stuff. reading Schopenhauer right now, so be careful. You're a stronger, stronger man than me. Um, <laughs> now, the issue that I have with him is like, I like he might be the smartest guy to ever live. I don't want to be like him at all. Sure. Right. He, you know, at the end of his life, he lived with like 20 of the same breed of dog that he called the same thing. Like they all had the same name. Cause he said, Oh, they're all, they're all indistinguishable from each other. It's like, you suck. I don't want to be like that. Hmm. Uh, so one of the questions that I pose to people a lot is if you had, who do you think is the best living person right now? This is the most well-rounded altogether great person. It's not a philosopher, right? You don't ever like point at someone and be like, oh, you know what? Um, Zizek is a, is a badass. I do like, I don't like his <laughs> politics, but I do like Zizek. Don't get me wrong, but he's a funny guy. Um, he's got a better attitude towards life than most of the I philosophy. mean, what what kind of, uh, I, I guess this is an interesting question. I mean, who who is a an aspirational individual in today's society? Is it is it an entrepreneur? Is it a, you know, a politician is it a celebrity is it a uh i mean i i'm actually having a hard time thinking of uh what the most heroic archetype of today is there are so few of them that are worthy of our uh, praise that's a huge problem right this is a this is a big issue and also um partially where superhero movies come in mm. um because we've moved the idea of heroism into the realm of the impossible it's not a thing for mortals anymore, right? There's no, and also everyone hates Hawkeye, for example, who's a normal guy that hangs out with superheroes. He's like, he shouldn't be in there. I want to watch superheroes. We don't, we, I think culturally have detached the idea of the heroic from normal life because we are all so miserable and live such like uh, mundane lives that we have to believe that heroism is not attainable to deal with what we have. For mere mortals. Yeah. And that's, and we also, as a corollary to this, we deify people that are heroic to avoid having to be like them, right? If, um, if, if, you know, this is probably super spicy, but if, if it came, if someone was like, Hey, we've found, uh, I'm making this as a hypothetical argument. Um, trad, trad cath people don't get mad at me. Um, if somebody was like, Hey, we can prove Jesus was just a dude or something. Right. Well, then that state of, moral perfection is attainable by a person right um 
that would really bother people because when you deify something, you can make it something you don't have to be like, right? And that is bad. You, we don't have a vehicle by which people can live um, very moral lives. And we actively try to tear down people um, for tiny little moral slights and stuff because we yeah. don't want to believe that people can be good, right? And so this is a or, this or is good. we also don't want to take the good with the bad, right? Like yeah. there's this there's this problem in our culture of like if someone's done one bad thing in their lives or you know had some other parts of their personality or their past that weren't great that we would frown upon, then we have to discount all of the other good things that they have, they've done. And the thing is, human beings are uh, imperfect creatures, and so you know if you look deeply enough into any of your heroes. Uh, past, present, whatever, they would all have very human flaws. I'm not saying that like there's no such thing as a one person being better than another. I do believe that like there is such thing as like hierarchy uh, among humans. But I would say that this uh, this like standard of perfection that we hold people to, where no one can be praiseworthy unless they are without flaw, is itself another problem which i know sounds like it contradicts my early my my previous statement a few minutes ago mm. um but i think that's part of the the trap that we're in sort of is like we find someone and then we go oh well maybe they're not doing this very well you know like maybe elon musk isn't spending enough time with his kids <laughs> and it's like well okay then we should just throw everything else he's done away well that's but that's the point because mm. to to see a person doing anything good is like boiling oil for someone that is doing nothing good, right? And we would rather say, oh, they did one thing, you know, we can dismiss them than grapple with the possibility that our own lives could have been better than they are or could still be better than they are, which is traumatic, right? And so, for example, if you have... Um, I don't know, like a good rags to riches story. Um, we hate those people. <laughs> we America, America pretends to be all about underdogs and stuff. We really, really don't like them. Because if a random person, you know, somebody from like inner city Detroit or like Flint, Michigan or or rural Appalachia becomes successful, then it's an indicator that you could too. And we don't want to think about that because we just wish we were successful. There's a wonderful book called uh, Love and Will, which I discovered after the values thing, which is cool. It's a, it's from the 70s. By it's guy all these strange synchronicities in your life. You must be doing something right. That's, yeah, that one hopes, right? It's either that or apophenia. But um, Rollo May wrote a book called Love and Will. Uh, one of the things he talks, it's just awesome. Everyone should, if you like psychology, it's a phenomenal psychology book. But um, one of the things he talks about in there is the difference between wish, want, and will. And I think this is like, if if everyone just knew this one concept, the world would be so much better off. So when we say the word want, most of the time we actually mean wish. People say, I wish I was rich, right? They're, people who say, I want to be rich, generally mean, I wish I was rich, or I wish I was successful, or I wish I was in better shape, or stuff like this, right? Because if you acknowledge the difference between wish and want, then you understand that you don't actually want that stuff or you are not willing to do what is necessary to get what you want, right? 
And that's like, we as a culture really, really devalue the will because the nature of the will is fundamentally like this, this masculine, like, I'm using that loosely, but that as a contrast to like love, which is like, oh, everything should just happen. Everything should be nice. Everything's flowing. Everything's fluid. Um, will is a masculine principle. It is. It is the, I, I believe that's the essential. We will, we will assert this unapologetically. <laughs> that's it. And it's the will, will is dangerous. That's, I mean, love is dangerous too, but will itself is fundamentally dangerous, right? Mm. Um, because it's change. It causes change. Chaos erodes, but it's not the same kind of, like, it's a slow change. Will can change very quickly. And that, as a force in a person, right, it is, it's a psychic or psychological or spiritual or whatever kind of force. It's a thing that you can hone. And your ability to do something with that thing is how you have agency in the world, right? Um, and when we don't um, interface with that force within ourselves, then we become passive right? Like will is active. And so if, if people were aware of the fact that they really wish when they think they want, then they could start to want to actually want, right? What do you actually want? You know, there's a, a phrase that I like that I imagine. But what are you also. willing to sacrifice to get? That's it. Everything's a trade-off, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's a saying that I like in my head uh, that probably people would complain about, but um in the end, everyone gets what they want. And the way that I think about that is most people do not know what they want. And you get exactly what you want, which is mm. probably to take the safe job, to watch a bunch of TV at night, do whatever, right? And I'm not saying this as a person, you know, like I'm more of a video game guy than a TV guy. Um, but I also, you know, read at night and I do other stuff too. And I know if I just sit around and do fun things, then I'm not going to get closer to my um grandiose visions for my life right mm. and it's like the acknowledgement of that and if you are aware of this fact the more you're aware of this fact the more you realize every second of every day you're making decisions that move you in the direction of will or discipline or or whatever you want to call it or you're moving the directions of passivity which you could call that love but that's the catch it's like the love is also the devouring mother right mm. love is like the the warm embrace of the grave you know as you like slide into into the chthonic coma. forces yeah. that are burying you into the into the ground for eternity. Exactly. And it's like, you know, that's another thing too. Like I I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure we do this game more than once. I'm pretty sure life is uh it's ironically, I I don't know. The way I think about it is I think life is both um reincarnation's real and individual consciousness is also real. Hmm. But you're just everybody, right? Not in a meaningful way, not like um like, obviously, I'm a distinct individual with likes and dislikes, um, and so are you. But I think, like, fundamentally, consciousness itself is universal. And so if you think about life as, you know, like, kind of riffing on the eternal recurrence, you think about life as a series of iterated games, right? What you put out in the world changes the character of the world. And that may be significant things. Uh, that may be insignificant things. If you just like a really good, like, parent, you made the world better. Like you did the most important things, like not create more screwed up people. Um, but also if you make a business that pollutes the oceans or destroys the ra uh, rainforest or something like that, you've made the world worse and you made future versions of the game for yourself, whether it's for you or not, right? Like it's not consciously for you. You're not like aware that you're these other people too, mm. but life is you and your life and you're you're like a finger puppet on the finger of God, right? And you're very attached to this little 
puppet and God takes a finger puppet off and it, you know, you just kind of get washed back into the thing, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, I like, that's the way that I try to think about it because you can look at, you know, like an abstract concept like karma in a little bit more of a, which karma is just cause and effect. It's literally causality, right? Uh, it doesn't need to be a metaphysical, like fancy thing. It's just, if every action has an equal opposite reaction, right? But the net amount of all actions you do creates a net amount of opposite reactions. You can, you know, smile at a stranger and then they have a better day. You can um, shit in the street and make San Francisco a worse place to live, right? You can do all these. You can do anything you want to do. (laughs) It's a big country still. Some things, maybe some things we shouldn't do, right? Yeah, right. Um, Right. But that that's the way that I tend to look at it. And if you look at like that's in one way, this is where, you know, people like Kant can have almost an out. Um, I I am more more or less like morally opposed to the idea of the philosopher who doesn't do shit. Mm. But if you wrote something horribly inspiring that like really made people just better off, um, then that that also is a thing that you could do, right? And I don't think a lot of philosophy does that generally. Um, but you could read some people like you read like the Alchemist. It's not like a transcendent book of brilliance, but it's really just pleasant and makes you feel better about your life, you know. Mm. Um, so I don't know, you know. I, I'm kind of rambling at this point, but the um, I think life is a series of iterated games, uh, and whether or not you come back, like you're you are a piece of the system that should act in accordance with the laws of the system mm-hmm. and ideally act in such a way that the system gets better right if if you if nothing else happens at the end of your life but you made the system better like you did a good job right to be fully integrated uh as closely as possible which also requires individuation there's an interesting uh yeah apparent paradox there i don't think it's an actual paradox but um it's... go ahead sorry Oh, no, no. I was going to move forward. If you have something to say about that, please do. Individuation is interesting. We went super hard in the last several hundred years on like being hardcore individualists. Mm. Uh, I don't necessarily think that that's the end stage. I think it's like there's a there's one of several models of childhood development that say like that there's this three stage model, which is like when you're first born, you identify with the parent like an infant literally does not know the difference between itself and the mother. Mm. Um then you disidentify with the parent, you become the opposite of it. And an adult can both self-identify and identify with the parent. You know, you, you reconcile with your parents. You're like, oh, maybe the stuff they did was actually not as bad as I thought it was when I was 12, right? Mm. Um, and it's like, it's interesting because that kind of maps to political parties. It's like conservatives identify with the parent. Let's just do things the way we did when we were six or, you know, 500 years ago or whatever. Uh, progressivism is rebel against the parent destroy uh wear all black be punk rock mm. and then there's some uh, some secret third thing where you can kind of say oh maybe some of the stuff in the past is good maybe we could do some new stuff too yeah that's that's interesting so that yeah there's uh there's a lot to say there but i i don't know if we want to go down the whole rabbit hole right now um we skipped over the pizza story what's the pizza story uh, I hope it's not Pizzagate. <laughs> no, it's not Pizzagate. No, I, I'm not. I philosophy stuff can be spicy and like really vague, indirect ways because of some of the stuff that I talk about. But I'm not a spicy person. That's not my scene, right? Mm. Um, it's pizza story. Uh, I for many years, I think like three years now, I've run a philosophy club in a business Discord called Triba. 
um, once a week. And for a while, when I started my agency, I would go through and analyze, you know, with a group of people, like different industries. So I'd let them pick whatever. And we would look at all the different um, websites of people. And like, if you could read their values or if they have articulated philosophy at all, which is how I discovered that actually people who have this articulated philosophy do a lot better. And so my favorite that of all the industries I ever looked at was pizza, which is surprising, right? So if you look at the industry layer, these numbers might be old, so don't quote me on these, but this a year or two ago, this is what the numbers were. Domino's is number one. Domino's, their core concept, which in my um, sprints that I do with my clients would be called their alpha, which is like the one word central metaphor, emotional core of what you're doing. Mm. Their alpha is the word dominate. Um, which is obviously a play on dominoes, but they're hyper-masculine. It's very, it's like red, white, and blue. It's very American. It's very mechanical. They um, came up with 30 minutes or less. They came up with a car that has a pizza oven in it. If they are doing drone pizza deliveries, if they're not already doing it, they will be the first to do it. They are like hyper-rational, hyper-efficient, crush the competitors kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Next is Pizza Hut. Pizza Hut, I think Domino's is like, maybe 750k per year per store on average uh i want to say pizza hut is a maybe like 50k less than that or something to that effect pizza hut does not have a clear articulated philosophy but they do have a very clear vibe which is it's very friendly it's very warm they're red you know white and red it's more when there's some yellow in there it's like warm cozy their thing is shaped like a house if you go uh pizza hut is only uh the only one of the top four that you can actually eat in the store Mm. Uh, so it's more familial if you've ever eaten in a pizza it's actually very just friendly family nostalgic kind of thing so they have that going on they also have more stores but make a little bit less um number three is little caesars little caesars is just franchises that's it they know that hey it is exactly the same thing pizza pizza five bucks whatever um that's it they're just advertising the franchisers um or franchisees and um Next, the last of the four is Papa John's. Papa John's is better ingredients, better pizza. Um, they're also threw in a dash of racism. Uh, I know Papa John uh, dropped the M-bomb or something to that effect, uh, which hurt them. But not the, they are kind of vague. It's not clear other than the ingredients thing what they were going for. And so the spread between um, Domino's and Papa John's is like 150K per store per year on average, right? However... If you go down, like I think it was like 21 on the list, Mellow Mushroom, if you've ever had it, makes a million dollars per store per year on average. They just have far fewer stores, right? And so Mellow Mushroom, for whatever reason, because I was just going by the list of who, who by where, where are where I've never heard of or been to a Mellow Mushroom. Where are they located? There's one in San Antonio, I believe. There should be one here. It would fit the vibe of Austin very well, but they're largely in the South. Okay. Um, so they had two in Raleigh, where I used to live. Um, mellow Mushroom has a central concept, which is mellow. And the premise of that, I mean, it's a little bit on the nose, but premise is to be mellow with the customers, mellow with the environment, mellow with the ingredients, right? Every single one of their stores is custom designed, right? So in Raleigh, they had two. Downtown Raleigh was an old one. It'd probably been there since the 70s, but it's like all, got all these um, big like foam plastic mushrooms. It's very psychedelic and stuff. Uh, the one in North Raleigh, which is in a nicer area, was, you know, a little bit more modern, but they had this giant buried statue or half buried statue of Poseidon in the backyard and like, <laughs> okay, nuts. all the all the places are decorated by local artists, all the menus are designed by local artists, 
all of the stores on their menus have a unique pizza or a couple of different items that are specific to that location, right? Much just higher quality, everything. It's the best of all the like, don't, uh, Dave Portnoy people don't get mad, but it's the best of all the pizza chains. So there are probably some like uh, New Haven pizza that's better. I haven't been there. I don't know. Mm. But my buddy from Connecticut. Yeah, it's was, the New the Haven pizza is out of this world. That's what they say. Yeah. So don't, not notwithstanding any of that, but they're not chains. So, um, so yeah, they just, it's some, for whatever reason, this weird little hippie pizza company crushes, crushes the spread, like more than the spread between number one and number four. They're up here, right? They like, like 200K more than Domino's makes per store because their philosophy is far superior, right? The way that you do one thing is the way that you do everything. And if you know what you're trying to do and you have this mission, then you will attract better talent. You will attract better customers. You'll be able to do things better at scale because it's consistent. People know what you're trying to do. Mm. And you can brute force that like Domino's where it's mechanical, make as many stores as we can, make it as efficient, as cheap as possible. And you're fighting on costs. Mellow Mushroom Pizza is like <laughs> probably twice, at least 50%, if not uh, you know twice as expensive, but it's way better. And we would just go there. You know, we had one by the house. It was like, I'd rather do that than order Domino's. You can't eat the Domino's, right? Mm. That is the one that really illustrates the point very well. But this, I, having looked at probably a couple dozen industries, if you see an industry that is not popular, like health insurance or medical or um, anything like that, all of their philosophy is bad. There's no no company that has a good one. A lot of times companies, the most they'll have is like a um, our values page. And you can tell when it's a bad company because they're written by the HR department. So it's like, verbatim the same thing on every company we value diversity we value equity we value inclusion yeah, yeah. it's like copy paste the same for everyone microsoft's is exceptionally bad they have like five or six pages buried deep in their corporate website they had just like three values with like maybe a line about each of them and it's like nobody's ever looked at this page other than me because i was the only person that would go dig through this stuff for that you know what i mean but good companies have, you know, A16Z is a notable example of someone who did it in a weird way, but they have like an essay for each of their like value concepts that they work around and they're A16Z, right? Yeah. Okay. So basically the, the gist of this is the companies that, uh, I mean, I guess, you know, Mellow Mushroom probably isn't the highest revenue pizza chain, right? Uh, but by far, right? It's it's not way down there on the list. But yeah, it's twenty. The highest value per unit, right? Of uh, per unit of effort, let's just say, uh, has to do with this this like deep alignment and this sort of. I don't want to use the term mission driven because it just gets overused too much. I mean, uh, I think uh, Coinbase did a good job with Brian Armstrong, you know, establishing themselves <laughs> as a mission driven company. But that's, I guess. Close, close to. I, I think mission is maybe one step up from values because the values are derivative of the mission. But anyway, um, I break it down a little bit differently than that. So I recently revised my exercises, and the way I do it now is we talk about values first because values are abstract things that you care about. Hmm. You do your mission, you do your vision, and then I've introduced. Uh, I just did this for the first time with a client today. Virtues, where virtues are character traits that you need to have to accomplish the mission so those would be derivative from the mission values you value what you value to begin with right mm. 
you we can you can say that you have different values than you have but you don't right you're you you just might not know what your values are um yeah everyone and the has, mission the mission itself is representative of your values right it it, it draw it derives from that because if you're you know if you value so like, i got it backwards <laughs> well no because you what you were talking about is really virtues that's the thing i found oh, that people okay. talk about they use it two different ways and i mm. talk to other people that do like not exactly the same thing that i do but similar work with startups and stuff like that and i realized there were two separate things right and that's virtues derived from your mission like if your mission is to be a bodybuilder you probably need to be disciplined and like like eating 10 meals a day or something like that you know um it, it, it's <laughs> i think like i've I, i'm trying to put on weight uh i, I mean I, it's not like the most important thing in my life right now i'm doing a bunch of other stuff so but i like i'm conscious of like okay i need to put on weight i need to like eat more food i i believe now after doing this a little bit and i know some bodybuilders um that there's an element of like uh of masochism involved because having to eat like every two hours is just painful it just sucks uh are you a hard I, gainer is that what is that uh i yeah i believe so i mean i've been lifting continuously for about a decade and you know i'm not a big dude so yeah know. maybe i'm not doing something wrong but um no, I mean, you just that would be it is you just need yeah i'm just like i'm more, tracking right? my macros and i'm like looking at what i need to eat and it's like it's you're just going to be full all the time and not not feeling very good um what is uh what is the candy cane oh good question. i'm glad you brought that up so the candy cane is a model that i kind of Rand had a thing that is not exactly like this that I thought was cool, but she just didn't flesh out well enough. But she, one of the concepts she came up with is this idea that there are um, basically if uh, you have Kant in 1600-something and then 100 years later you get Marx and Engels. Well, it's like Kant, Hegel, Marx, and Engels, right? In about 100 years. 100 years after Marx and Engels, you get um, the first attempts of communism. 100 years after that, you get um, all hell unleashed on the earth, right? And so, this idea of how ideas move through time, right? This is this is Rand's account. That, of... well, that's that's her. That's how I thought of this. Okay, right? all right. So I was. I don't know if we're at the hell on earth quite yet. <laughs> yeah, no. That, well, it was more of like you know, hundred million dead from communism than the yeah, 20th sure, century. But sure, sure. Um, so at any rate. Uh, I was thinking about that and I've thought for a long time about how ideas move through time and like how ideas lead to different ideas. And so the mo the candy cane model is basically um, there are three dots that are not part of the, like the, you can't do anything about these. So that doesn't, you know, otherwise it'd be an arc, but um, you have basically realities down here. Reality is just whatever it is. Does It's not up for debate. We could, we could debate what it is. But you can't not debate that it is what it is, right? It just is a fact. Uh, we can derive from reality physics we can derive from physics biology those are like three things that impact you that you have absolutely zero control over right mm. okay first first notch on the candy cane is epistemology one which is the nature of the self um it is the you know thinking about how how knowledge is acquired right you just have we call that self or something like that right um this is if, if this is the most difficult to access of all these things so this everything kind of flows out of that but your self-perception and your perception itself uh all things derive from that because of the way that like sensory input is processed right so 
Um, if you see something, you hear something, you taste something, whatever, that is all processed through your sense organs and through your mental apparatus before you're doing anything with it, right? Um, a good metaphor for how this works is like, you know, there's, um, you go to the eye doctor and they have the, like, I don't know what you call that giant like thing with all the lenses on it, right? Yeah. Everybody has one of these like in, attached to themselves that they cannot see or interact with, right? Mm. And all the lenses are thoughts, ideas, opinions, feelings, and beliefs, right? Uh, some yeah. of them are permanent. So if you have that eye doctor thing, so there are little glass lenses that are just built into the thing that are flat, right? They're not affecting it. But for us, maybe your lenses are tinted a certain color. Maybe they have a certain kind of focal point, right? You have some kind of perceptual way of interacting with reality that may be fundamentally biased, right? So it would be wise to know in what way your glasses are jacked up, right? Your lenses are jacked up, but it's very hard to get here, right? This mm -hmm. is real meaningful self-reflection about the way that you perceive things, like actually being aware of like cognitive fallacies and 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 inherent biases and stuff like that. And pretty much knowing about this doesn't actually really help you make that much better decisions because it's just how they work. If you look at, um, you could teach people about cognitive fallacies and, uh, you know, stuff like that, and they still do them. Uh, you still have a blind spot somewhere like here in your eye, regardless of whether you know if it's there or not. Um, sure. So anyway, so that in a, in a perfect world, we'd be able to do something about this information go up to the top this is the most abstract layer of, of all the philosophy stuff if if at the bottom is just pure reality so we're all the way up at the top of this arc um that's metaphysics so what is the world how does the world work right you would think that that's asking questions about reality but it's about our relationship with reality which is different right hmm. um, and so metaphysical framings about the world kind of inform you know the difference between if you were like um metaphysically an optimist uh versus metaphysically a pessimist right like you could be a gnostic you could say reality is fundamentally bad and evil and i have to meditate or or experience gnosis hard enough that i can escape from it and it's like that's kind of like buddhism it's kind of you know it's gnosticism it's a bunch of uh mystic traditions uh but you could be like you know what do they call them the definite optimist like that would be a metaphysical counter to that which is just like everything's great we're going to figure it out yeah um, optimism's cool optimism's not a strategy whatever but I'd, it'd be better to be an optimist than a pessimist unless you're a really good pessimist and you could do something about it um so that would be metaphysics right so your your perception of reality comes before your metaphysics so if you were able to change somebody's personality their metaphysics would change as a consequence of that if you are like you know if you have no limbs um and you like have a breathe through a tube and stuff the high likelihood is you're probably going to think life is hell right there's some people who don't there's a guy who didn't uh tony robbins talks about him which is pretty cool because he's just a super super positive guy but that's because he had some self awareness or self-worth or or like extreme mental toughness or something that made him able to overcome the metaphysical thing that would arise from being in a terrible situation like that right most people can't do this so most people's metaphysics are informed by their poor self-concept. They hate themselves, so they hate the world, right? It follows. Coming back down to epistemology too, um, that's how we relate ourselves to the world, like the, the relationship between basically our place in the world, which you can call this your role, right? So if you have a metaphysical, uh, your, yourself, your self-concept is um, my job is, uh, you know, uh, like I believe life is fundamentally good, the, the world is also good, 
your job might be to do, you know, pursue your dreams or, or like you believe that you can accomplish something meaningful, right? So mm -hmm. epistemology too comes out of that when you relate your, the, the concept of the world back to yourself in the world, not yourself in yourself, right? Um, go down from that again, this is uh, aesthetics. The, I have an idiosyncratic definition of aesthetics, which is aesthetics is what we value, right? So if you value beauty, right, if, or we could, we could debate the nature of beauty, right? But there are th some things that are more beautiful than other things. That's whether people believe this or not, everyone acts as if this is true. Um, anyone who is a very beautiful person knows that this is true. And anyone who is not a very beautiful person also knows that this is true, right? Mm -hmm. Just pretend like it's not because it's hard to, you know, hard to yeah. deal with. But yeah. Um, aesthetics, you know, is is what you want what you value you want to move towards the good or away from the bad right you want um things that are symmetrical and and have balance and all these other like components of good design or art um so it's your it's your want so this kind of derives uh you know what you're going to move towards you have a role now you have a, a goal or a vision so you're uh, an aesthetic concept is a vision right under that we have ethics which is okay i know what i want i have a vision of what i'm trying to achieve how do I do it? How do I get it? So ethics are uh, rules for action, right? We think ethics is just morality and an ethic, like an ethical concept would be immoral, but morality is actually a tool to do things the right way. You know, um, mm -hmm. if you think about, for example, say I'm a farmer and you're a farmer. If we don't steal each other's grain and in fact work together then if i have a bad harvest then you can share some with me and vice versa right so reciprocity evolved in people because it's so useful right so actually most of the things that we think are ethical um are actually just such long-term strategies that it's hard to understand the roi so like um you know obviously having a good reputation as as an entrepreneur or as a um, service provider something just as a person in general makes everything else in your life easier, right? Being ethical makes your life easier. Mm. Um, we, I, the modern way of approaching moralities and morality is this outdated, stupid thing, but it's in fact, uh, the people who think that tend to, everything sucks for them <laughs> because they're not acting morally and acting morally should in fact be the easiest way to get what you want, which is, or at least the easiest way to get what you want correctly, which brings us down to politics. Politics um, is how do you get what you want without fucking other people up? right? So it's ethics in while other people have ethics, right? It's the interaction between um, act, uh, acting parties uh, as they interact, right? So an ethical or, or a political concept is a policy. When I, uh, I have an article about this that goes through this at length, but basically the premise of the article is how do you, how do you actually change someone's mind or convince them of something? So I had an old article I read a long time ago called Why I Don't po uh, Talk About Politics or Philosophy 101, where I kind of introduced the candy cane. But it was like, okay, what if we reverse engineer this? So going from the bottom up, I would like you to give me more money or from the government or something. That could be a political policy, right? Um, that's the most basic kind of thing. That's not a convincing argument. Or maybe I want you to give poor people more money or, or Ukraine or someone more money, right? Yeah. Uh, or Hawaii. The policy is something like, we're going to send money here. We're going to send money there. 
Policies don't exist in the vacuum, though. So I, we could debate the merits of the policy, but generally people are not actually talking about the policy. They're talking about a level up, which is an ethical premise, which is, is it good to give money to Hawaii or good to give money to Ukraine? Or is it good to not give anyone any money, right? You go up a level from that. Well, there's a vision that people are actually trying to achieve, right? Your ethical like action is in fact trying to move towards a vision. So maybe having Hawaii rebuilt or having Hawaii return to the natives or having uh, you know, super wealthy people buying all the land in Hawaii and turning it into a, a condos or something, right? These are all different visions that people have, right? Those visions come out of their role in the world. So what do they see themselves as? Somebody sees themselves as a compassionate person. Maybe they want to send money to Hawaii relief or Ukraine relief, right? Somebody sees them as a savvy political actor. Maybe they don't want to send money to Ukraine because they think it's a scam or they want to send money to Ukraine so they can destabilize Russia, right? Mm -hmm. You go up a level from that to metaphysical uh, premises, right? Well, a metaphysical premise is a revelation or something. So if you, uh, this is like the root of the concept of like red pilling someone, red pilling someone is changing their metaphysics, right? Any, any kind of pill is a metaphor for a metaphysical shift in a person. You're giving them a revelation about the nature of reality, right? Mm -hmm. This is a really effective um, thing that you can accomplish with someone if you know the right way to frame it because uh, a change in their metaphysical perspective provides them with a new role in the world, a new vision of reality, uh, a new way to act, and a new way to interact. And right? all cascades, yeah. Yeah, it, and that's, this is the key. So really changing someone's mind, if you wanted to do it the correct way, the most powerful, permanent, like everything else would change as a consequence, you really want to change their self-concept, right? Not mm. just their role. You can be, um, I could be Jim the baker and then become Jim the welder and be the same Jim if I'm not like attached to my job or something. I've changed my role without really changing how I see the world. If I love manual labor, I have a great life. If I think life is hell, then all this work is punishment for some karmic debt or, or God hates me or something, right? Mm. Um, but if you change their self-concept, they, as a consequence, will change their concept of the world, right? If you teach someone, hey, actually, um, instead of thinking like you're you're cursed in this flesh prison or something, and um, actually, uh, you know, you're just like born stupid or ugly or, or lazy or something like that, you say, no, actually, you can make yourself better. You change their belief in their agency give them access to will more or less right mm -hmm. you could give them access to love and you like somebody's super compassionate to you and it changes your way of seeing yourself which is like the plot of late Miz, right mm -hmm. um or really that's the, the premise of the gospels too um so but e either of these work right if so, uh, if jocko tells somebody like hey um you know you have to go to the gym every day and they do they became a different person yeah. right that the belief that they can do this thing changes them and that changes the way they see the world. So if you thought the world sucked and it was actually like, oh, you're like fat and lazy and 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 uh, not taking care of yourself. And then you start doing that. Well, actually, the world's not that bad. People kind of like you now that you're not smelly and and um, covered in Cheeto dust. Right. So that's mm. kind of kind of the premise of the candy cane. It's like you can't you cannot change uh, reality or physics or biology. Uh, maybe we can change biology at some point. That would be the next level of complication. But debate it. I don't know. I don't think uh, we'll see. But um, but if you understand this premise, like your ability to change yourself opens up the ability for you to meaningfully change other people for good or for bad. Right. Mm. Um, 
but if you can understand that all of the other inputs in the world everyone's opinions your experiences and stuff you can override that by discovering how to change yourself right and maybe that just means changing the way you see yourself maybe be nicer to yourself maybe be harder on yourself right both of these are viable paths uh i'm personally very masochistic right like um i lived in a tent for a month uh, i've done 40 35 and 30 day water fast respectively um i enjoy um unpleasant shit i used i, I ran a 50k it's not it's not fun <laughs> and anybody who runs ultra marathon marathons will tell you it's not fun um so for me the thing that motivates me is just be like go do this thing that sucks you know like the the sucking and and dealing with that is is the part for me that really gets me going if you're nice to me i will be very lazy right hmm. i'm nice to myself i'm gonna be really lazy like i'm nice to other people it's like you know i assume that's what most people want but for yeah. me the thing that gets me going the self-transforming thing is like destroy yourself right and, mm -hmm. and rebuild okay so i mean i think there's a there's obviously a lot to say there um but the deep insight really is that you want to uh affect the most foundational change that you can in somebody uh rather than trying to convince them through uh you know propositional i'd say even rational argument really um i mean i i i don't not believe in rational argument i think rational argument can work for some people in some situations like we I, we've all had an experience where we were uh we were either considering something or someone was arguing with us and the reasonableness of their claims struck us like in a moment where all the puzzle pieces came together and we couldn't no longer you know resist it like that, that certainly does happen but a lot of the time there's a lot of cognitive biases dissonances etc ego that get in the way of us really interpreting things in those manner and so i really like that this is sort of i think of the metaphysical and i'm not trying to reappropriate the concept but i think of the metaphysical layer as sort of like the axiomatic layer of your reality right and we're sort of in a materialist paradigm these days so everyone kind of only thinks of the biology and the physics maybe math as like the most fundamental layer um but the way that we interface with the world as beings as social beings as well is fundamentally about this this concept of belief and so i really like that and uh yeah i wanted to just give you an opportunity to explain the candy cane concept. And I think it's interesting that you started it with this claim about kind of the futility of, uh, of political arguments, because so many people get stuck in these political arguments. And I think, uh, you know, I, I believe in politics. I studied politics quite in depth. Um, I, I don't think I'm like a totally apolitical actor, but I think that a lot of people are, stuck in these political uh in in political identities and in political agitation because they lack uh a kind of like perspective on what would be like a more deeper way to affect change or to affect oneself um and so i think i think varying levels of those can be can be effective like i think you could affect the world on the level of aesthetics and do a lot of good work some people really believe that you can affect the world a lot on the level of you know ethics um, and, you know, and then other people are more focused on, you know, literally just 
breakthroughs in biology, breakthroughs in, in physics, whatever. And, and those will, of course, be very effective as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Well, like, if you really want to do something good, the easiest place to start is aesthetics, right? Like, aesthetics has power that straight up ethics, do, ethics isn't as scalable, because it's kind of like how you do stuff. Mm. Uh, and you can tell other people how you do stuff, but you could show them that, which is, in fact, aesthetics. It's a vision. You gave them a vision of what they could now do, right? But look at um, literally the 60s as an example of the power of aesthetics, right? If you really want to think about the power of aesthetics, though, um, during the Cold War, the CIA funded people like uh, Andy Warhol and Jackson Pollock mm -hmm. because... Yeah. In the Soviet Union, they had a really kick-ass art style that was called Soviet or socialist realism. That was the last, the last good phase of art. Um, and we, for whatever reason, did not want to compete with that. So instead of competing with it, we uh, CIA, you know, funded a bunch of people to destroy the concept of art itself. Yeah, they won, which is one of the things the CIA likes to do is win the short term and destroy everything in the long run. Uh, now art sucks. But they thought it was so important that they invested tons of money and years into building stuff up because it does matter, right? Like aesthetics mm -hmm. absolutely matter. Look at the um, what seems like a non-political argument because it's not really political. But when Trump was in office, he passed the bill about the classical architecture for political buildings. Yeah, right? the neoclassical, yeah. Yeah, and then um, they immediately undid that. Yeah, it was too like, much. It was too much. <laughs> But that that seems like on the surface, if you look at it exclusively politically, right, in the, it's in the essence of policies themselves, because we say politics, meaning the yeah. game of politics and yeah, the yeah. whole thing, but really the politics are just the policies that are being passed, right? Like that is what, sort of. in the sense that they, at least in my use, of, my idiosyncratic use of the terms, right, mm -hmm. they are ethical ethical rules that we apply to multiple people, right? Um, the real fight is this role and metaphysical fight that they're going against. It's and a spiritual war. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really trite, but it's true. Yeah. Uh, in the essence of it being a fight over the metaphysics, right? And that, mm. that metaphysical fight really draws from people having poor self-concepts or contrasting self-concepts. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I... mix that with biology, you could just like give people better food and then they're going to feel better and then they're going to think the world's better, right? So there's ways to hijack the system, but you can't just guarantee that like giving somebody a bunch of stakes is going to make them yeah. a person. I mean, I think there are individual workarounds. Um, what I would so say, though, is that I think it's really easy to control people if they don't have a clear vision of the good. And I feel like uh, we really suffer from that a lot right now. Like really neither major political party is offering a clear vision of the good for anybody. Um, and... Uh, that's why I've never affiliated with either one and uh, why people are so, you know, dismayed uh, with the whole political process and the whole show itself. And the people that are into it and really captured by it um, are uh, are just kind of like uh, weird, like like it's it's like they have a disease. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I have friends who work in politics who have political ambitions um, I don't mean to like uh, insult them, but it's like if you're not offering people a a compelling vision of of the good, of your idea of what a good society is, then um, you're just feeding them garbage, basically. And um, you know, like we shouldn't be doing that. Like we shouldn't be eating political fast food.
yeah it's the the only person that i've seen actually do this correctly and i i do not think personally unfortunately that he would be capable of pulling this off because he's just too unstable although i love him very much kanye when he went on rogan and talked about his his plan for yeah i know this is a super like stupid opinion to have but if you listen to him when he went on rogan and talked about his plan he doesn't talk about like I mean, some of the policies and stuff he suggests are a little bit dumb but like he's like oh we're gonna build better cities and we're gonna build better schools and we're gonna do it like this and you can visualize it and be like wow you're the only one that has actually said this is what it's going to look like you know right. what i mean which is the thing that's it's so much easier if i'm pitching something and i say um here are some new rules for your life where you're gonna do these things right it's like well that's not compelling here's why it would be good if you did these things okay it's a little bit better. Here's mm-hmm. what it's going to look like when you do these good things. That's even better, right? Here's who you're going to be when you're moving towards this vision of, of the world, doing these things that are good, right? Or doing good things in that order, right? Mm-hmm. Here's what the world's going to be like when you're the kind of person who's moving towards this cool thing and doing good stuff, right? Here's how you're going to feel or here's how your life will be fundamentally changed when the world is different because you're moving towards this awesome thing and doing cool stuff, right? That's, it immediately becomes a better pitch the further up you go to Candy Cane. And Kanye, at least, is pitching on the level of aesthetics. That's about as far as, get, you know, he's not like necessarily giving people roles and stuff, which I think is, you know, where it kind of falls out. But, um, but that's what Marx did. That's why Marx was effective because he said, metaphysics, hey, he didn't talk about the self stuff. He didn't say it's your fault. He says other people in the world are oppressing you because there's a metaphysical war between the proletariat and the bourgeois. It's been going on forever, right? Mm-hmm. That's why you need to become a radical so we can achieve the communist utopia, yeah. which means you do this stuff and we enact these policies, right? That's that's what a good pitch sounds like, and that's where you know as much as you know, like I'm enjoying um, Ramaswamy. I think. Uh, he's very entertaining to watch uh i personally would not vote for anyone i've never voted except in one um nevada election that was for uh taking away warren buffett's energy monopoly because tesla was pushing for um competing in the energy market which i lived there at the time i thought that was a great idea but Mm -hmm. mainstream politics they're all uninspiring we have so little concept of what a real leader looks like and that's again why i asked that question and you you referenced it like there's not real vision you know what I mean? We don't mm-hmm. like the thing that people actually want is like here. And the best that people get is maybe like 30, 40% of the way there. And it's just like so milk toast and so mundane. But if you think, imagine if somebody came out and they were like, this is how it's going to look like, hey, we've produced renderings of the way that we're going to rebuild cities. Here's a detailed plan. Here's all the jobs we're going to make because we can actually fix like American infrastructure. We're going to uh, stop subsidizing corn, which you can't do because the corn um, lobby in in um, Iowa, right? The first the first co- uh, the first political primary is in the corn state. Uh, yeah, so no, yeah, that's Iowa. Say yes, the corn. Mm-hmm. I heard um, a little bit of a tangent, but it's funny. Um, I heard somebody say that the um, the reason why American politics is screwed up is because the Native Americans invoked a corn demon to curse us. <laughs> um, yeah, and right. lo and behold, look at the look at the politics of corn, right? Um, mm. corn's corn has almost single-handedly destroyed the country. Uh, high fructose corn syrup and stuff. Big like that. corn, yeah. 
it's evil right yeah uh but at any rate right just imagine somebody like actually painting this picture giving you a new like it wouldn't if to, for it to be really compelling it would have to be um something more elevated than that where you're saying we found a new way to look at the world right you can well, personally transform it yeah I, I think that's what a lot of people are working on i mean at least in my sphere of of uh of the internet of twitter and so forth um, there's a bunch of people working on aesthetics and the politicos, I tweeted something out about this the other day about the war between the politicos and the aesthetes and the, the politicos, the people that are like, you know, working on the Hill or working in conservative media or this or that, or whatever, um, or, or focused a lot on like public policy, you know, like Hanania types, um, they really hate the aesthetes. Like there's a lot of, um, they have a lot of, uh, hate for us because in their mind what we're doing is like useless and is not like achieving their uh very like concrete specific goals um and i tried to explain this and i said well look the problem is that the aesthetes keep telling the politicos that their project is going to fail and the reason it's going to fail is because they don't have a coherent vision of the good and until we figure out what that is and it's going to take some time i don't think there's going to be some genius visionary like one guy who comes forward and gives us the plan i mean maybe that could happen but i'm imagining it's something more um more iterative and more organic uh where over time people start to narrow in on some kind of uh compelling aesthetic understanding of the world there's a culture that's built around that and then you get political engagement going forward that's how i imagine things changing um why not, why not both so well, I'm I'm not saying they're mutually exclusive. I'm just saying that I think there's the the origin of this fight has to do with this bias, uh, among these two groups. It's yeah, hundred percent. Well, it's ultimately. I mean, this is also a theory versus practice debate, but really good theory is really good practice. And right now we have like blind practice and useless theory most mm -hmm. of the time. The, something you said though about the uh, not one person, the way that I think it works is. The great man, people say, oh, is it the great man theory of history or, oh, is things just happen? Like both of those things are true at the same time. Yeah, I, I believe I in great, I believe in great individuals. I mean, for, for, for clarification, I'm not a collectivist. Um, <laughs> no, no, I, well, I mean more in the sense like, is George Washington the reason we have America or is a variety of other stuff that, you know, it's. I, I, I think both. every great person is a vessel for the times right yes. they emerge they emerge out of the wave of history to surf for a little while right, right? yeah yeah but i think that's what i like your i like your point about that because i do think the groundwork is being laid and it has been for some time now um for this new thing which is not the left or the right mm -hmm. because if either of them had their shit together it would it would be easy right but when you know um curtis Garvin talks about this uh that after um the you know the roman republic became the roman empire uh there was a debate that was you know the optimates and the populares debate mm -hmm. would never came back until a different like dichotomous debate occurred because it was so satisfying that that was over right mm -hmm. and i think that's you know what one of the questions he asks a lot which i find very entertaining is are we the, the end of the american republic or the end of the american empire Right. right. And I tend to think it's the end of the Republic. I think um, that there's people, people really want something 
in a person that has not yet showed up and that like the the human spirit calls out for the leader and the leader will rise you know what i mean like it's it's just that i think that is a like a law of history or a law of the world that that is just the right person you know if you think about imagine like if washington was born 100 years in either direction right mm-hmm. probably would have just been a farmer like he went back to farming he probably just wanted to farm he's not like a crazy like <laughs> dominate george guy. the new meme is going to be george washington just wanted to grill <laughs> but he literally did he stopped being present to go grill right um, that was why he was the best um i have a little bit of an issue with that to be honest like it's the irony is the great testament of the absolute best possible leader is that they don't want the power yeah but right. in giving up the power they in fact should have just stayed and led more because you know what i mean and we have this who, kind of who like, better than them right that's the paradox that that's the issue and it's mm-hmm. um there's the part of part of this puzzle is i think the idea that a moral person should not seek power is a bad rule that is a really stupid thing to believe because if moral people do not seek any kind of power because we demonize the concept of power because most people who have power are bad or everyone perhaps um if well do not seek I, power, I think it's deeper i think it's deeper than that but yeah it's we have i mean that's the system's falling apart right so the incentives are bad i think that's it's largely an incentives problem i do think people are fundamentally probably at least not totally bad there are some people that are totally fundamentally bad like irrevocably so but I think most people are at least pretty decent and given a system that supports them, doesn't poison them, gives them jobs and stuff. Uh, I, I just, I think that the work. demonization of power is an anti-vital. Yeah. It, it's dumb. It's, it's yeah. anti-will. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this is, you know, similarly, I'm reading, I'm reading several things right now because I haven't committed to finishing something, but um, Tony Robbins talks about this a lot because one of the things he does when he starts like, um, working with people is get them to reframe their concept of power mm-hmm. which is like that's one of the first things he does and it's like oh well power isn't this like malicious force that the rich have and you shouldn't want it but you actually don't have any so you really want it um it's the ability to do work right yes it's, power is is definitionally the ability to act on your will right mm-hmm. um or at least that's the way i would define it and it's that is something you should pursue and it doesn't have to be like that doesn't mean, hey, I'm going to go get elected so I can tell everyone to do exactly what I want, um, which probably is not the best thing in the world. But certainly, there are other people who are trying to do that. And, you know, that doesn't mean, like, stoop to the bottom of the barrel and become a despot to fight your enemies. It's like, just be, give people vision, right? Believe in something. Care about something that matters and and show that to people because you can absolutely paint someone a picture and say wouldn't this be better than what we're doing right now and they'd be like yeah and you say okay here's how we're going to do it give them a job right part of that i mean it really comes back to people have to believe people in the in their heart have to believe the world isn't bad that it, it they are capable of changing and being better than they are and that they can win if they try you know that's that is so critical and that's so out of reach for most people because we've adopted these philosophies and these visions that are so soul crushing and smothering we do not believe that we're capable of doing anything right the forces of evil feel so overpowering and the way the world is is so bad but it's like 
something else I like in Rand is that in Rand, none of her villains are like evil, evil. They're not like genius villains. They're incompetent, mm-hmm. which makes them very evil and dangerous, right? Yeah. But they're just they're just dumber, right? Because virtue, morals, ethics are functional, right? If mm-hmm. you live in accordance with reality, you're living ethically. And if you understand reality, you have an advantage over people who don't. De facto. Right. If you don't know how gravity works, you're going to crash your car, right? That's you by seeking to understand reality, you can better understand yourself. If you better understand yourself, better understand the world, you are more useful than other people. And so philosophy makes you better at everything, right? But but real philosophy, not fucking horse shit philosophy that people do now. Like the real like the pursuit of of self-knowledge and acting on that and mm. re- constantly refining yourself and being self-critical and being willing to look at yourself and your life and say, maybe this isn't what I want. Maybe I should do something else. Maybe I don't know what I should be doing and I should seek out some kind of information somewhere, right? That's the beginning of everything good that you can have in your life is being willing to do that. Well, this has been a great conversation, Garrett. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and for uh, doing this. Before yeah, we uh, we let you go, where can people find you? Where can people get more information about what you're up to? Yeah, uh, my website is ion.aion.enterprises. The uh, A is silent. Mm-hmm. Um, not .com, it's .enterprises. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at uh, liber underscore rex, L-I-B-E-R underscore R-E-X. Um, I'm also going to start doing some TikToks and stuff, but I need to figure out what I'm doing with that. So uh, if you follow me on Twitter, I will definitely post them on there. Cool. Thanks. Thank you.